All right, hello collaborators and welcome back to what is and what could be with Michael Clark Architect. As always, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen in. It's a chilly day for me and I wanted to get this recorded before I moved on to other things because there's some interesting things to talk about. Here we are once again in this podcast series where we talk about the experience of collaborating with architects and realizing architectural projects. We work through the creative thinking behind the design of spaces and places. If you are a property owner with a piece of land you are looking to develop, a building you want to add to or alter, or you're a business owner renting a commercial tenancy, my hope is that these podcasts help you move forward with confidence whilst working with your architect, your design team and other collaborators. Similarly, if you are a collaborator, a contractor, a builder, a fellow architect, a student of architecture, a consultant, engineer, musician, artist, anyone looking to work with architects, I hope these podcasts add to your daily practice. All right, so um, we're still focusing on this idea of why, why work with an architect under two categories of what do architects do and why do we do it? And the more I talk about this, the more I appreciate that we're gonna to have to circle back to this. In a way, with every episode, we're gonna discuss what architects do, but I will, uh, I'm keen for these first um, few episodes to provide an overall structure, framework of what architects do in broad terms before we delve onto um, other subjects. And we are, one episode away from my first interview, I'm pleased to announce that I did interview a consultant colleague that I work with a lot, and that will feature in the next episode. And it's a good setup for this episode where one of the things I'm gonna talk about architects doing is working with others. I'm gonna talk about the concept of teamwork. Now, importantly, when I say teamwork, what I mean is not the architectural team, the design team. You know, the company that you've engaged and, and their, their team members. I'm talking about another group whose contribution is vital to the realization of these projects. And that's the consultant group. And I'm going to talk about them in a lot of detail today. But I just want to talk in broad terms about teamwork in architectural project realization because it is a design exercise. Throughout these podcasts, I'm going to talk about everything we do is focused towards design. Design as a response to the client's vision. And we never let go of that. Everything we do, every twist we come, every compromise we come up against, every, every curveball we come up against, we position ourselves to say, okay, how will this impact the response to the client's brief, to the client's vision? And there's many hands involved in this, which is why I wanted to talk about the team work. Um, and the arrangement of that team, the team that we surround ourselves with is a design exercise. I'm just, I, I did a summary last night of um, all the people I've been corresponding with um, for this project I'm realizing in um, Bondi Beach. Um, and some of these people I email regularly, some I 
don't email at all. I just talk to them when I see them on site with the construction team. Um, others I know are working on it, but I might not have anything to do with it. And this is only the people that I'm aware of. I'm sure there's many, many more within the teams that work on the project. Like I, I don't know the full extent of the joinery team um, other than the representatives that I work with. I don't know the extent of the steel fabrication team other than the representatives I work with. So this is actually fairly um, inaccurate summary in some respects, but I'm counting 30, 30 people that I'm dealing with on our side of the fence. And I, I mean that quite literally, but our team that are realizing the project, I'm dealing with 30 people for a semi-detached house in Bondi Beach, Alterations and Additions Project. Now, when I say our side of the fence, there's other people that are reviewing it on the neighbor's side. Um, there's the uh, local government uh, town planning team that are reviewing it. I'm not counting any of them. But that's how many people are involved in this one project. And we are collaborating, working with all of them to realize this project and make sure that it aligns with the client's vision. So just to summarize these, let's call them players, these team members that are on our side of the fence, um, somewhat in order of appearance, but also in order of um, uh, who's leading the project, certainly initially, who's leading the project. And the first player is the client, the client team, the client representatives, the, you know, the users, the family, the pets, whoever is using the space and the instructing party, the instructing representative of that team. They're number one, it's their project. Number one in appearance, number one in, um, in significance as to who's leading the overall project. Um, and they construct the team in a way by selecting initially the designer, the lead designer, the architect. And so they're number two. But I'm going to spend this podcast talking about number three. And we refer to this group as secondary consultants. Now I'm a bit uncomfortable with the use of that term because their contribution is anything but secondary to the overall process. It is vital to the process. We only refer to them as secondary because someone's leading the process, you know, the architect and the client, and so client is, sorry, the architect is the primary consultant, but we as architect are doing a few things. We are assisting the client in um, briefing these consultants, obtaining fee proposals from them, reviewing those fee proposals against the overall vision brief specific to their disciplines, and then providing advice to the client as to who is the best value for money. And we usually select them based on experience um, most recent experience from a previous project. And we have spent years working with these consultants and reviewing their output, their design input, um, project after project after project. And so they're the third group that I'm gonna to talk to. The fourth group is the artisans, the craftspeople, the craftsmen, the builders. Um, and it truly is a craft, an exercise in craft, an exercise in craft conceptually, as in the team that they surround themselves with, 
because we know that a builder is only as good as their site manager, as their carpentry team, as their joinery team, as their steel fabrication team. Uh, so that's a craft, creating that team, selecting that team that they have selected uh, for us. That's a craft, but also the craft of what they, what they do, what they literally build. And I'm gonna dedicate an episode to them and uh, hopefully interview a couple of builders that I work with regularly. But today we're gonna to talk about the, th the third category, the secondary consultants. And suffice to say, that the success story of a building, as I'm, as I'm saying, as a space, as a place, is inextricably linked to the output of these consultants and how we um, tailor that output specific to the vision, the client's vision. And that's something the architect um, and designers are doing, working with these others. And we're doing it in a few ways. First of all, we're selecting and we're providing advice to the client and then we're giving them information and they're giving us information back. They're reviewing our drawings, we're reviewing their drawings. They're reviewing uh, specifications and we're doing the same. We're, they're giving us bits, we're reviewing, marking up, meeting, sending back. But I won't go into that detail just yet. I wanna circle back to um, two main concepts. Because again, I just wanna make a note that this exercise, this exchange is a design exercise. So here's an important fact or an important concept. Is it hard, let's think of a structural engineer, is it hard to design a building that can resist gravity, defy gravity, hold itself up, uh, create an open space for a particular room, resist wind load, water load, uh, seismic load, live load from occupants, live loads from uh, equipment, cars, uh, air conditioning, whatever. Is that hard? Absolutely. Absolutely. Years of training, education, and it's an evolving beast as regulations and, and conditions and, and the way that things are designed and the codes and the like change. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really hard. It's really hard. But what's harder again is to do that specific to the response to the client's vision, the client's brief. That's harder again. Tailoring all that, um, not just to make the building stand up or, or resist those loads, but to achieve a vision is, is, is really hard. That's a serious design exercise. Um, so now let's just take that point for a second and, and make fun of all of us. All of us. This is a small, short parody. Um, a, a director I've worked with in the past made, made me think about things this way. Um, so I'm gonna make fun of the architectural profession. I'm gonna make fun of structural engineering, everything. And we've heard all this before, uh, if you've worked in this area. But if you haven't, I'm just using it to make a point. In the mind of the architect, in the mind of the designer, what's the most important function of the building? What's the most important aspect of the building? And people might say that all the architect cares about is it the space, the site-specific space, looks good. Now, I don't know what that means, and I don't think anyone knows what that means. Looks good means 
some, is something subjective. What looks good to one client, to a builder, to a structural engineer, to whatever, it varies. But for the purpose of this exercise, I'm gonna say that it means that it responds to the architect's take on the client's vision, the client's brief. And if it does that, then it's good. It's a good building. It's a good space. It's a good response. It's all we care about. The structural engineer sees the building as a vessel, as an entity. Um, it's not alive, sorry. It's an entity as, as an object in space that has to not fall down when gravity is applied, wind, live loads, etc. And if it does that, then it's a good building. A hydraulic engineer sees the building as a vessel to drain rainwater slowly or at a rate that doesn't put too much pressure on um, public infrastructure. That it uh, can supply water to outlets, to taps, to toilets, that it can drain that water, which is polluted water, sewerage water, um, at a rate that doesn't put pressure on, on public infrastructure, that it can reticulate gas. If it does all that, then it's a good building. A mechanical engineer will see the building as a vessel to distribute air, conditioned air, hot or cold, to ventilate, maybe naturally, to exhaust unwanted air in toilets, in car parks. And if it does that, it's a great building. A quantity surveyor will say that if the building can be built to meet the client's budget, you know, at the cheapest price, then it's a great building. A town planner will say that a building is good, it's a good design, if it satisfies, if it meets all the controls specific to that site, to that local government area, then it's a good building. A heritage architect will say that if the project is sensitive to the history of the area, the conservation area, or the heritage listed building in the past of that building, then it's a great building. Many, many more disciplines. Landscape architect will say that if it's got this incredible lively garden um, that has character and warmth, then it's a great, it's a great design. It's a great response. Now I'm putting my hand up to say that's a generalization. It's a deliberate par parody. You'll see that I've included our profession, architects, designers, and I mean that in terms of a fit out as well as a overall shell design. So interior designers as well, that if it responds to this client vision and it looks good, then it's great. And here's the thing, all of them are right, but all of them are also wrong. It's a balanced approach. It needs to be nuanced. We need to design it so that it doesn't fall down, but we need to tailor that design, that structural design, specific to what, as architects, as interior designers, as designers, we're um, deeming to be good, as in it responds to the client's vision uh, or the way that we're framing that vision. And so it can't be any of those alone. It's got to be all of those combined um, relative to the discipline. 
It's got to be a symbiosis. It's got to be a harmony of all those issues. And as architect, as designer, we're getting all those um, disciplines, we're sitting with them and we're putting their hat on to a certain extent, or we're wearing two hats. We're making sure that we're maintaining a design response, but we're appreciating the importance of the design contribution to, um, specific to that discipline. And this is something I really love about architecture, I have to say. When I was at school, towards the later years, I really liked the idea that, you know, my, my favorite subject was art and, and English, specifically creative writing. And you can maybe, you know, appreciate that based on the way I tell some stories. I have a flair for the dramatic. I have a flair for embellishing. But I loved that, you know, whilst I had my art um, subject, in the afternoon, I might be a lawyer looking at family law issues. In the morning, I might do some, you know, studies into numbers and how they can dissolve, twist, turn, change in calculus or statistics or whatever in maths. And I loved that exercise. And then later on, I loved how um, I'm now struggling to think of other classes I did at school, um, how I would look at uh, general studies and general issues related to um I don't know, overall social issues. Um, but I loved that I had these different hats and I put these different hats on and I always tailored all those hats to think of this you know, creative response. And that's exactly what I experienced in that first year of architecture that really excited me. I remember lining up to enroll. I had to line up to enroll. Yep, I had to line up for a long time. It was, oh, it was so labor intensive. I mean, it's not hard to stand for hours in a line. But as an 18-year-old, my patience wore a bit thin because those lines were long and took a while. But I looked at my subjects and there was architectural theory, architectural history, architectural structures, architectural environment. And they were all two hours a week. Um, and they all fed in to this main subject, which was design studio. And I loved putting those different hats on. And that remains to this day. I love sitting and resolving the structure with the structural engineer and thinking about that exercise in the context of this specific response. Same with the town planners, same with everyone. I love working through that. Um, so let's just talk through some short examples as to what that exchange might look like. Now at university, um, my first encounter with a structural engineer was, uh, was compelling. For me, it was compelling. It was a structural engineer his name was Ali Pasanajad. I think that was his last name. Ali, if you're listening, if you're out there, hello. Um, would have been great to work together professionally. Uh, my understanding is that you work at a practice that doesn't work on um, single dwellings. But in any case, I remember his enthusiasm, his rigor, his, his tenacity was just compelling as he threw out these concepts that if you, if you be superficial, if you sort of look at uh, the content, not how it was presented. If you look at the concept by itself, you might think that it was stale. It wasn't particularly compelling. You know, I, I think it is, but the way he presented it was really exciting. His enthusiasm was, was compelling. And whilst I didn't get the numbers, the number exercise perfectly right in that um, first year, it would have been great to sit down with him in a tutorial setting, like a lecture setting, a lot's going on, a lot of information coming out fast, rapid. I got the concepts, I really got the concepts. 
as he drew and calculated or whatever, but I didn't get the numbers, the detailed numbers stuff. But anyway, that was my first encounter. And I've got to say that that energy, that enthusiasm is something I've seen from a lot of structural engineers. I don't know if that's a requirement of being structural engineer, um, but it's certainly been my experience with structural engineers professionally. Anyway, the first structural engineering experience or the experience I had with a structural engineer post-graduation was a structural engineer that worked for, a, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to say a bigger organization, but they, they worked on um, non-residential projects. And we're working on a project in a, in a bigger company that was an awning. It was an awning. That was my first graduation project. I'm drawing a sectional profile of the awning on my paper. And like always, I've got the pencil and I've got the drawing. Um, anyway, uh, if you think of awnings and you go down, I implore you, like I said in a previous episode, you know, architects, designers, uh, builders, we've all got this curious mind and we walk down streets. And I'm not saying other people don't, but we certainly do. We walk down streets, we go to places, restaurants, other people's houses, and we look and go, what's happening there? And how does that work? And what's going on there? So in terms of awnings, if you go down like the main, sort of the oldest part of your town, your main retail district, your, um, your city, or whatever, you'll see that there's the conventional historic awning. And that is um, an awning that has a level suffete you know, a level underside, which is the suffete, you know, think of it as a ceiling, but because it's external, we call it a suffete. Off that, you might have signage that relates to the shop that's next to it, or some other lights or a patterned uh, heritage profile or something. And then as you take your hand, imagine you're touching that suffete, you take your hand towards your palm, towards the street, then you're gonna turn up 90 degrees and you have a face, and that face is a fascia. And that fascia is, thick it's deep like maybe a meter half a meter and that's a classic um almost heritage like fascia and maybe that fascia's profile profiled it's got some pattern or texture or something and then above that is the roof uh, falling to a gutter draining and what you have on top is what we call stays and those stays are a metal steel connecting to the awning structure and tying it back to the facade the building facade to allow it to suspend independent of columns below to give you clear space underneath for um, pedestrian traffic. That's a classic awning design. Sometimes you'll have columns and no stays, but that's a classic awning design. That's not um, necessarily expressing the structural dynamic in the way that we wanted to for this particular project I was looking at with this, um, this, this structural engineer when I was working at another company. Uh, the project we were looking at was an existing public space that was a little bit brutal. It was a little bit bereft of... Um, it, it needed some softening. That was the vision from the clients. We needed to soften it. One way to soften it is by adding an awning that has a different um, feel to the original building. And because it was a cantilevered awning, we thought it would be an idea to express the structural dynamic and so I gave you that first example. I implore you now to look around and, you know, in front of an apartment block, in front of an institutional building, a university, a TAFE, a public building that's, you know, long, not linked necessarily to a street row, but it even could be linked to a street row. You might find that it does something other than what I just told you, that maybe the underside of the awning 
tapers, so slopes or rakes from the building side up to the street. And that's doing what we call expressing the structural dynamic. And by that I mean that the structure, the cantilever, is working the hardest where it attaches to the building. So that's where we need the most amount of material, the most amount of depth to the structure. But if you think about this like your arm, and just to prove I'm not making this up, I'm holding my arm out as we speak. When I hold my arm out straight, I can feel my shoulder working hard. I've got my core turned on. And if you like, that's the cantilever attaching to the building, the building being my body. And that's working harder to hold all this together than my bicep, which is also working hard, and my tricep to an extent. I'm only holding a pencil, always holding a pencil. My forearm's working a little bit, but my, my wrist, my knuckles, my fingers, my thumb are doing almost no work. They're just holding themselves up. Um, and only, you know, there's hardly any work there. There's hardly any tension in my fingers. I've got to wriggle them just to be sure. But there's minimal to no tension in my fingers. My shoulder is doing the most work. And it's almost like a tree as well. You think of a tree trunk. The trunk, uh, as, it ex as the branches extend out, is much thicker, more material than the branch itself. And so we wanted to do this. We wanted to have more material at the building and then taper that off, reduce that um, amount of material towards the leading edge um, so that we had this dynamic. And that leading edge, we want it to be, you know, as thin as my fingers. You could imagine, you know, I'm putting my fingers out flat. And that material, that height is like a centimeter, 10 millimeters. And so we wanted to do that. We had this idea of maybe doing it with a plate of steel that was attached to a vertical. And we call that profile, if you draw it on the page, an upside down L, where the horizontal is to the top and the vertical to the bottom and attach that to the end of the awning such that when you look up at the awning from below, it almost looks like the tip of the awning has no material. I need, sorry, <clears throat> getting too excited. As you look up, there's no material. And we were sort of thinking about how to do this. And I remember ringing that structural engineer, whose name was Ian. And he, um, he had this alluring presence you know, he, he was bald and he had a beard that was almost like Santa Claus. And I, I, I couldn't imagine the guy ever stressed, but he would ring me and talk and like the world could be collapsing behind him and he just would talk at that same pace. It was very different to Ali in that respect. But I remember him saying to me, if you're interested in this idea of a tapering structure going to a pencil point, May I suggest the idea of an aeroplane? Oh, sorry, an aeroplane wing. An aeroplane wing, I thought. I was first year out of uni. I was maybe, I can't remember now, 24, 25. What, what are you talking about, an aeroplane wing? Yeah. And he sent me a fax. That's talking about how long ago it was. He sent me a fax and he'd done this um, beautiful drawing uh, of the section of the awning um, with the tip looking like an aeroplane wing and how that would work. And if you think about it, like as you look at the front of an aeroplane, the most material you see as you're looking front on is the cockpit, is the, uh, the, the, the middle where the passengers are. 
where there's seating, where you need more space. But as you draw a line out from that to describe the wings, the wings are proportionately almost immaterial. You know, and as the plane angles itself, you see the surface area of the wing, but it's, it's fine material. And this section, which I thought was really exciting, I ran and showed my director, I said, check this out, what do you think? We still went ahead with the equal angle for various reasons, but I'm, I'm, I'm using it as an example to show what this design exercise entails. That we had an idea of a response to a vision and we were trying to work through it and the structural engineer contributed to that in a way where I wish I still had that sketch. I would have framed it. I should have it somewhere in my office. I don't know how I'd go about finding that, but that's something I'm interested in doing. And another example, still with structural engineers, um, I remember working with, um, with Damien, a structural engineer I, I, I still work with, um, who has agreed to actually come on the show. Looking forward to that episode. But I remember we had this idea for a wine display at a company I was working at. And I, I just had this idea for a fine wine display. I won't go into the specifics. Um, and we went to look at the uh, site. And then afterwards, I went to have a coffee with Damien and just do some little sketch scribbles. You know, we're not in his office. We're not in my office. I don't have a computer next to me, nor does he. He's got um, some A4 paper. Pretty sure if it was Damien, it would always be A4. And I might have had bigger. I probably had the plans. And I just scribbled stick elevations of what we were what I was thinking. And he said, well, how about this? And what about this? And I'm thinking this. And we just had this exchange, this design exchange. Now, he's not an architect. I'm not a structural engineer. And we had this exchange of him maybe putting on an architect's hat and thinking about spatial implications and the overall response to the vision and me putting on his hat to understand you know the load and the way everything needed to be supported and within this, within the space of 30 45 minutes we had an idea an idea that needed to be tested he needed to crunch the numbers but because he's crunched so many numbers in the context of his career he was relatively confident that it was going to move forward and work um, and I needed to test that as a drawing back at the office with, with my directors. But we just did it over a coffee. It was a design exercise. Um, and I am guilty, actually, of taking some consultant's drawings and thinking, wow, look at this, look at this response, look at how they're gonna make this response to the vision work. You know, look at how they're gonna make the building drain and maintain the design vision. Look at how they make the structure work and maintain the design vision. I feel like you know, I almost want to present that to the client. Watch this, look at this. Let's get the structural engineer. This is exciting. Not all clients um, are up for that, but I find that really quite exciting. And I, I do see these drawings, these markups, this response as truly as a craft. Now, um, a couple of other examples, quantity surveyor, um, you know, quite often with uh, a quantity surveyor I work with, uh, Matthew, who's going to appear on the show next week, you know, I, I sit down, I say, I've got this idea, what, what do you think are the cost implications of it? And he'll say, well, think of this, but how about this alternative? Could you do it this way? Could you do it that way? If we remove this part, if we make it smaller, or if you remove this labor component, you know, um, the results could really have great implications, one on the cost, but not necessarily at the expense of the overall vision. 
You see, Matthew's knowing that he can't come to me and say, to make it the cheapest, you could not build it. That's not an acceptable response. Or you could build a square out of the cheapest materials that maybe have the shortest durability qualities or overall um, uh, just general aesthetic qualities. And that doesn't align with the vision, the specific vision to that site. But we're working hard together to balance the two. And I've positioned myself, architects and designers have positioned ourselves over the years with that team. And so you might think, well, I, I know a structural engineer, or I know a hydraulic engineer. Uh, I've got a cousin who's a quantity surveyor or a town planner. And that's great. You know, the town planners I work with are very good at saying, this is the risk of not complying with that aspect of the development control. And here's how we're going to present that and work through that to prove that that non-compliance is not at the expense of overall amenity to neighbours and to the um, public domain. But there's still a risk that council might say no. And we work through that. And we've positioned ourselves uh, to have consultants that contribute that way. And your brother, colleague, client, sorry, cousin, whatever, they might be trained that way and that's fantastic, but let me put it a different way. It would be remiss to say to a unit that is as tight as the construction team to say, hey, I've got a friend who's a plumber, can you use them? Now that plumber might be fantastic. I'm not saying that. But are they fantastic and in the context of how that builder operates, of the system that builder uses? of the process, the sequence, the, course, the communication techniques, etc., that that builder uses, because they're all vital to that success story. And someone who's not done that before with that builder might have problems, the builder with them, them with the builder. And that would be to the expense of the project. Now, architects and designers are happy to work with anyone, right? But you have to understand the risk of putting someone forward that hasn't gone through these exercises before that are hard. As I said, they're hard to tailor the response specific to the way that this architect, this designer is, is working. That's a hard exercise. Um, not impossible, but it's hard exercise. And it's certainly something ideally we'd like to avoid taking the risk uh, for that first time on that project. So just think through that when you're suggesting people um, to the lead team. Anyway, that's it. That's the idea of teamwork. And this idea that understanding that one of the things that architects do is we coordinate what we call the output of other consultants that becomes the design input. And we uh, like to do that as early as possible so the project design doesn't advance too far with you know, the promise, the idea, the excitement that that might present that has to actually be altered to suit a situation. You know, a classic example is I present a project that's got the tallest possible ceiling heights, but I've not done that without reviewing first what the structural engineer needs in terms of beams that we wanna hide, what the mechanical engineer needs in terms of um, any air conditioning that we also wanna hide that might mean that ceiling needs to drop. 
Um, that's one example. I'm not giving an example of every uh, consultant that's available. I, I feel like each year a new consultant surfaces. But I have certainly um, listed some of the classics. Structural engineer, hydraulic engineer, mechanical engineer, there's electrical engineer as well, town planner, heritage architect, landscape architect, quantity surveyor, and there's also a land surveyor. Um, there's many, many others. Geotechnical engineer, hazardous materials consultants, um, visualization artists and artists, uh, musicians, you know, by no stretch of the imagination, every project, every time needs all of those consultants. Your architect will work with you to say which ones you need. Um, certainly, as a minimum, you want someone to help you work out the budget, quantity surveyor. You need someone to draw up the um, detailed land information, a land surveyor. And you certainly need a structural engineer. Um, but your architect, your designer will assist you in saying which ones we need to work with and why. The important thing to note from all of this is that you're not out there by yourself having to select them, uh, find them and coordinate their output. That's something that the architect does or certainly I do and all the architects I know do. And that's this idea of coordinating the team that is vital to the overall project realization. Something that I really enjoy amongst all the other aspects of what I do. All right. That's it for this episode. Appreciate, as always, you taking the time. Uh, if you did like this episode, one thing you can really do for me to help is share it with others. I look forward to hearing, sorry, <laughs> uh, if you want to reach out and discuss any of these items, feel free, my details, you can look me up on my website. There's contact details there. Until then, We'll see you next time. You've been listening to What Is and What Could Be with Michael Clark Architect.